Good morning. If you would take your Bibles and open to Ephesians 1 again. As you know, I've kind of been looking for things to illustrate uh, on Sunday mornings coming here to church, and I have found some. But yesterday, the Lord gave me just a little something ahead of Sunday. It was Saturday morning, and I decided to uh, treat Ann to a McDonald's breakfast. She loves the bacon, egg, cheese McGriddles, if you haven't tried them. So I went to our local, about quarter to eight yesterday morning, went to our local McDonald's restaurant, which is Stetson Hills and Powers. And if you've been there or McDonald's lately, there's usually two lanes of traffic driving through the ordering system. And one, I followed a guy into the parking lot and he went to the left side and I went to the right side. Well, usually you go to the side that you think is faster, you know, and I think he did that. But the people in front of him were a little slow, so I went right and I got my order in, it's very simple, and uh, pulled up and I noticed that he had preceded me but he was just finishing up his order. And I just decided, I don't like it when people just keep flying through that and, and, and don't consider other people. So I just kind of waited and he looked up at me and I went, just go ahead. And he, he thanked me and, and he went through. And um, so when I got to the window behind him to pay, the lady told me, you know, what I owed and, and asked if this was my order. And I said, yes. And she said, go ahead, you're, you're done. And I said, really? What, what do you mean? Do you want me to put the card in? She said, no, the guy in front of you paid for you. He bought your breakfast. He asked about what you, you know, what you ordered, and he said, here, I'm paying for that. And I thought, what a gesture of grace. What, what a kind thing. Do we treat one another that way in the body? Um, I just drove out of that parking lot thinking, wow, I'm going to do that more often. <laughs> I'm going to wave people ahead. Is that, has that happened to any of you lately, and especially in the days that we live in? I don't know this man. He didn't know me. But he just decided, I'm buying his breakfast. There's something to learn there, isn't there, in a sense? Um, God was gracious to me. Someone might say, well, you were gracious to him. You, you let him go. You waited. Yeah, but it was more costly for him than for me. But I just thought, what a, what a neat thing to see. I was just moved that somebody would do that. So I got home and told Ann, and she was like, wow, try that again. <laughs> now, let's get on with the sermon. Just something else to learn. I want to start by this morning. We're looking at Ephesians 1, 15 to 23. And what is interesting is this, this passage, chapter 1, starts off with the first 14 verses, primarily from verse 3 to, to uh, 14. Paul is telling us about the great salvation, and he's blessing God, the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Spirit, for their part in providing this, in choosing us, the Father in choosing and adopting us into the family, choosing us to be holy and blameless, adopting us 
as his predestinating that we are adopted as his children. Then it comes along with his son. He redeems. He redeems us. He forgives us. He reveals the mystery of his person and his work. And he gives us an inheritance. And then comes the spirit in his sealing and securing ministry. And Paul is just consumed with blessing God for this so great salvation that we have. And then immediately follows up this opening part by praying after he's telling us what this salvation includes and reminding us how great it is and that we should be praising God. All of this is to the praise of his glory. He goes to prayer. He begins to pray from 15 down to 23. That's the first prayer in this epistle. He has another one in chapter 3. But this is the first one. And he begins to pray that we will grasp and comprehend the greatness of what this salvation includes. It includes more than we think by just reading the first 14 verses. Yes, we're redeemed, we're purchased, we're forgiven. What a wonderful thing. But there's more to it, and his prayer is basically consumed with, God, give them a greater understanding, a greater comprehension of this salvation. Here's what John Stott says in his um, commentary on Ephesians, and especially looking at this chapter that he would open up on verses 15 to 23. He says, although Paul is naturally thinking of his Asian readers to whom he is writing, yet throughout the first chapter of his letter, he addresses himself rather to God. He's, he's blessing God than to them. He begins with a great benediction and continues with a great intercession. First, he blesses God for having blessed us in Christ. Then he prays that God will open our eyes to grasp the fullness of that blessing. And he goes on to say in, in this introduction that sometimes we get on either side. We're, we're involved with praising for what we already have and we don't go further. Or we keep looking for more things and forget about what we do have. And he says, we have to have both in mind, what salvation is about, but also comprehend the fullness that comes. He concludes by saying, what Paul does in Ephesians chapter 1, and therefore encourages us to copy, is both to keep praising God that in Christ all spiritual blessings are ours, and to keep praying that we may know the fullness of what he has given to us. If we keep together praise and prayer, benediction and petition, we are unlikely to lose our spiritual equilibrium. And I think he's got a good point there. Don't just stop with the first 14 verses. Look at all, comprehend all that it will do for you. Now I'm going to give you a personal illustration of how I learned at least this process in a totally secular arena, but in this life. After I got out of the Air Force, got back from Vietnam and had one more year to serve active duty because I had turned down a regular commission in Vietnam, I had decided that the Lord was leading me to go to seminary. 
And so after five years, I got out and moved to Dallas, Texas, took my family, my wife with one son. Later, we had a, she had another child while we were in seminary. But one of the things I hadn't wrestled with was, um, I'm going to be a seminary student. How do I live and survive for four years? And I began to think about that. I'm, I'm a new believer. And I thought, you know, what have I been doing? Well, I was in the Air Force. Well, maybe I can go out and join the Air Guard in Dallas, Texas. Well, it just so happened when I went out, they had an opening for a captain slot, which I, that's, that was my rank, and it was in supply. And I thought, well, my dad, he was an Army quartermaster during World War II. Uh, I hadn't, didn't know anything about supply, but I thought, at least it's a job, and I've got, I, I can get some money to help live on. So I joined the unit. Just so happened one of my professors from Dallas was our chaplain in that unit. And after four years there, and I really appreciated all that, you know, the Air Force, the Air Guard was doing to help provide for our needs, um, we moved to Kansas. And the fellow who had been chaplain, my professor in the, in the unit said, why don't you look into being a chaplain there? And another thing I found out was, at least in those days, Salaries for pastors were not that great. And I thought, well, this will help su supplement my salary. So I went over to the guard unit in Topeka, Kansas, not too far away. I said, do you have any opening for officers? And they said, there's only one officer position open. I said, what would that be? Chaplain. And I went, oh, wow. So I became a chaplain and joined that unit. Went to Mississippi, found another unit there, and I was just thinking, all of these are providing extra income. That's wonderful. But you know, I, I never knew what the big picture was. I never comprehended the whole thing. I never even planned on fully finishing out all of my duty. Even when I went to the third church in New York, there's a chaplain, I mean, there's a unit, an Air Force unit, 10 miles away that needs a chaplain. So everywhere we moved, it just so happened I could continue. But no one ever informed me, if you finish 20 years, and I ended up with 26, what all that meant down the road. I never comprehended that there would be retirement and that I would be receiving a check every month because of that, those years of service. That's been very meaningful because you know what? In ministry, this is the first church that ever put anything away for pastors for retirement. The first one out of four. So when I found out that news and comprehended, I get a, at 62, I start drawing it. Yes, you start drawing your monthly retirement. And furthermore, guess what? You also get to keep your health insurance for the rest of your life. So because of that military retired service, continuing as a chaplain, doing church ministry. I get a monthly income, and all of our, almost 99% of any medical expenses that we've had, even through Ann's cancer, we have paid basically nothing. Now, did I know about that from the beginning when I joined in Dallas? No idea. Did I comprehend the fullness of what it might mean to retire? Nope, I didn't get it. I get it now. And by the way, I'm not necessarily advertising for you young men to consider 
being a reserve military person, but that's something to think about. But here's my point. Paul is praying, you've got the gospel, you know Christ, but you need to fully comprehend all that this means to you. And I am praying that you will get it, that you will have wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of God. You will know that all the things that are included in your salvation. That's what he's doing. That's what he's talking about here. So I want you to look with me. We can divide this up into three basic parts, and we're going to do that. The first thing is we'll look at the general theme of his prayer. What, what was, the, what was all, all, be, all behind, excuse me, the background, and then the general theme of the prayer, and then finally key in on the three specific things that he is really focusing that they will comprehend fully and know and appreciate and value. So the first thing is the background. Paul says, notice in verse 15 and 16, for this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you, and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. Now, the interesting thing is Paul had been key in founding this church. Second missionary journey, he spent two years at least there. He formed the school of Tyrannus. He made disciples. He found John's disciples when he went there, and they had not heard of the Holy Spirit. And he preached to them Christ, and they believed. He put his hands upon them. They received the Spirit, spoke in tongues, and that church began. But now he's writing from imprisonment under house arrest in Rome, probably five or more years after this, and he continues to get reports from Ephesus. This church is growing. People are coming to Christ and their faith is real. Their faith in him is real. And he says, you know what else I hear about you? I hear about your love for one another. Paul has confidence that they truly know Christ. And the love for one another is a key factor in him knowing that they're real. Do you remember what John says? 1 John chapter four, uh, 3 and chapter 4. He says, when you love the brethren, when you love those who are Christ's inheritance, when you show love to them, you show genuineness. But when you don't love your brother, what you show is you don't know Christ. When you show no love to those who are in the family, who are part of his inheritance, his glorious inheritance, you show that you don't love him. Isn't that interesting? But Paul says, this is the background. He says, when I think of you, I thank God for what he's done, that he's bringing more and more to genuine faith, to love for one another, and it, and it, it leads me to pray for you. I pray, and in my prayers, I thank and I ask God to do things in your life. So that's the background. But the second thing is, just the general theme of his prayer. How does he pray for these believers? How do you pray for one another? 
Look at verse 17. There's the general theme. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit, notice he uses the word spirit, spiritual, a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. In the knowledge of him. His general theme is, I want you to understand the one that saved you. I want you to know him. I want you to have wisdom and rev revelation in the knowledge of this one who saved you. You need it. So that's, that's the general theme that now is behind what Paul is going to write to them about. At any rate, Paul says that he is asking God to give them true wisdom, wisdom that is from God, through revelation, for the knowledge of him, and that is going to come one way, folks. That wisdom and revelation is going to come primarily through the word of God, which is God-breathed. It's scripture. It is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction in righteousness, so that the man of God might be, the Greek word is perfect. You can't be any better than perfect. And where do you get what you need in order to be perfect? Right here in this word. Given to the apostles, given by the Spirit, written, as the apostle Peter says, under the control of the Spirit. These are God's word. And Paul is saying, I want you to have wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of God. You need to know everything you can about him. They need to know what is in the word, and they need to have divine motivation to pursue it and understand it. They need a spiritual hunger. They need enlightenment in order to adequately interpret, understand, and grow. They need greater knowledge of him. We need greater knowledge of our salvation. It isn't enough to just know, I'm forgiven. I'm redeemed. He chose me. That's the beginning place. But we need to know what that includes down the road. We need to know all that that encompasses and embraces. And brothers and sisters, Paul is teaching us that it is in the Word of God that we will find those things out. You've got to be in the Word of God. You can't just come, as we've been saying, on Sunday morning and hear someone preach. And by the way, you, like the Bereans, you can't just depend upon the preacher without looking at the Word and examining what you're hearing in the Word of God. You've got to do that. That's what the Bereans were doing. They were approved of God because they were examining everything they heard. I'm telling you, there's a lot out there today that people are hearing and that is being taught and preached that is rubbish. It's not from the Word of God. You've got to be in the Word of God too. You've got to examine everything. Paul is praying earnestly that they will be in the apostolic teaching and have wisdom and gain the revelation that the apostles were given, that the Holy Spirit orchestrated, superintended, they will get it. You've got to be reading the Word of God. One of the reasons that I 
enjoy preaching, teaching, even at my age, is because it keeps me in the Word of God. It keeps me in the Word of God. Where else can I go if I'm going to talk about Christ, if I'm going to talk about salvation? It's in the Word. In the Word. And you've got to be, whether you're a teacher or not, you've got to be in the Word of God. The Scriptures are what we need so that we can learn and comprehend everything about this so great salvation. And that brings us to the third point, which are the specifics of this knowledge that he really wants them to grasp. Three things. Three things that are extremely important to Paul. Look at verse 18, because we're going to read down now to 23, and we're going to see these three, three things spelled out. The third one gets a lot of attention, but we need them today. We need this wisdom and knowledge of him and his salvation. Paul says, I pray, verse 18, that the eyes of your heart, the heart is the inner man, by the way, it's the spirit part of us. He's praying that our heart might see and may be enlightened, again, through wisdom and revelation of God, so that you may know what is the hope of his calling you. And what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? Another way to say that is, what are the riches of the glorious inheritance in the saints? Did you ever think of yourself that way? A glorious inheritance to God? We're going to talk about why that is so important in a minute. But here's the third thing. And what is the surpassing greatness of his power? That's the Greek word dynamos, from which we get the, the English word dynamite. The power, the dynamite toward us. He's not just talking about God's power in general. He's talking about the surpassing greatness of God's power to us. We need to know that. We need to know that salvation includes the hope of his calling. We need to know that it includes knowing the riches of the glory of his inheritance in us. And we need to know the greatness of his power. It's not just that we've been saved from sin. We have a hope that is everlasting and eternal. We have something down the road that we're to focus on when things get tough here. We're not to be seeking the things of this life, but the things which are above. So we have this hope. We need to know that salvation gives us the hope which is future and eternal. And it also ought to give us an appreciation of the body of Christ, which is his inheritance. We see a switch here. In the first part of this chapter, he was talking about our inheritance in Christ. But now it's talking about God's inheritance in us. It's glorious. And I look in the mirror and go, what? What does that mean? His glorious inheritance in the saints. And then this last thing, the surpassing greatness or value of his power, his dynamite, which is to us. 
We need to know these things. We need to comprehend the greatness of salvation and what it has brought to us. So first of all, let's talk about the hope of his calling. Paul says in Acts 23, 6, I am on trial for the hope of, a of the resurrection of the dead. The hope of the resurrection. If you looked up, by the way, if you looked up all the verses, there probably is a hundred New Testament verses with hope in it. You will find that the almost primary overall use of the word hope is in light of the return of Jesus Christ. It's the hope of the resurrection, the hope of glory that we are to keep focusing on. Paul says, I hope you grasp that. I hope you understand that. I was thinking as I did a word study on hope this week and just looked at all these verses, I could preach a series on, on just hope. Several sermons, it is so rich. Do that sometime, take a word, look at a concordance, look at all of its uses and you will be blessed beyond your wildest imagination. So, we have a hope that is sure and steadfast. We know that in this life, death is certain unless Christ returns and we're still alive. We're gonna die, and the reason that we die is because of sin. Not our sin, Adam's sin. The whole race was subjected to death. Everyone is born into this world dying with days numbered. We're not going to be here forever, but for Christians, we have a hope that goes beyond this life. We're not even really citizens of this world. We're, we're, we don't belong here. We are citizens of his kingdom. We've been made part of the kingdom of heaven and of God through Christ. That's our home. We're just here. I was talking to Bill Cologne this week. We were catching up with one another. He's been away, one of our elders on the East Campus. And he was down with his wife for a couple weeks in Arizona. He said, actually, it was 16 days. And he said it was very nice. They visited people who had been in this church. They had a good time down there. But he said, you know, at day 14, he said, I was ready to go home. I'd had enough. I was on vacation, and yes, it was pleasant, and all these nice things were happening, but at day 14, I thought, I'm ready to go. I want to go home. Why did, he, why did he feel that way? Because his home was more valuable and more important and more precious to him than even his two weeks of vacation in this place in Arizona. Folks, we should be feeling that way. We should be feeling that I want to go home. I want to go to the home that's eternal and permanent, that's with Christ, where there is no more death and no more sin and no more temptation. This is a place of struggle. This is a place of battle. We need to know the hope of our calling and focus on that hope day in and day out and all through our lives. The scriptures say some things that are just very interesting about that. L listen to a couple of verses here. Paul says, it is the unbeliever that has no hope 
and is without God in this world. No hope. He may think he has hope. He may be saving up a fortune here. He may be buying big things with it. But his hope is hopeless. He has no hope for the future. His days are numbered, but listen to what it says of the believer. But the believer is looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of the great, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So Peter writes, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What's Peter saying? That's where our hope needs to be. It is not in this life. Yes, there are good things here, and there's work to be done here, and the gospel is to be proclaimed here, and we're to live in a way that glorifies Christ. And when you do, you might even get a free lunch, I mean breakfast at McDonald's, if you try to do that. But that's what our life is all about here. Our hope is not here. He starts with saying, I want you to fix your hope on the calling, the calling that God had for you. And the calling isn't for here and now, just here and now. You're part of his kingdom, and you need to focus on that. You need to focus on the things that are above and long for the day and be anxious for the day when you will be taken home to him. Do you comprehend that? Do you, you get that's the major thing that he's saved you for? Secondly, Paul prays that they may know the riches of his glorious inheritance. Now, that's just the opposite of what we've been seeing in those first verses. That's our inheritance in Christ. Now it's his inheritance in us, his glorious inheritance in us. Paul seems to be saying that we are to see the value that our Lord has placed upon his church. It is his inheritance, and it is glorious, and he purchased it with his own blood. He purchased us, and it's a glorious purchase. Think of, it, think of the glory here in the sense of what he's done with us. What were we before he saved us? Dead in our trespasses and sins? following after the prince of this world, which we'll see next week, Lord willing, in chapter 2. Totally lost, totally doing our own thing, having no hope, desperately wicked, and he changed us. And he made us glorious in his son. He changed us. The whole church is his. Everyone who is part of the church is his. And it's a glorious inheritance. The riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. We need to appreciate that we're part of that. He's made us glorious in Christ. He's changed us. And he's made us part of the body that Christ is the head of. We are a visible display of his grace. He created us, he purchased us, he cherishes us, he holds us dear. Not because he saw anything special in us. He made us special. And by the way, what does that say too about the way we view one another? 
If I look at you as a brother and sister in Christ and realize you're part of his riches, glorious inheritance in the saints, that ought to make me feel different about you. How do I feel about my brothers and sisters who are part of the church? Do I see them as part of this glorious inheritance? Do I treat them that way? This, by the way, I think is why love of the brethren is held up over and over in Scripture. For instance, Galatians 6, do good to all men, but especially those of the household of faith. If we are all part of this glorious inheritance and made so by Christ and he cherishes us, then we should cherish each other. That's why if we don't love one another, there's no evidence that we even know Christ at all if there isn't this genuine love for this glorious inheritance in those who make it up. Do we get that? Do we understand that? We ought to be rejoicing greatly in God that we're part of that, but also rejoicing in one another and rejoicing. Remember what happens in heaven when one sinner is saved and brought back or one that is strayed is brought back in? There's rejoicing because they become part of his glorious inheritance. Have you thought much about that? that we are made part of that, that he glories in his inheritance. He's made it glorious so that it will be with him for all eternity on display. These are the ones that I bought. These are the ones that I died for. These are the ones that I love. These are the ones that I treasure. The riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Thirdly, and I think this is so important, Paul prays that we might know the surpassing greatness of his power. And then he illustrates how great this power is. But again, it's the Greek word dynamite. Listen to what Andrew Murray, who was a Christian back a ways in England, and he's written many things, but listen to this prayer. Andrew Murray says, beware in your prayer above everything of limiting God. Not by unbelief, but by fancying that you know what he can do. I like that. Not just by your unbelief, but by fancying that you know what he's able and capable of doing. Expect things above all Expect things above all that we can ask or think. Each time you intercede, be quiet first and worship God in his glory. In other words, before you begin to pray. Think of what he can do, of how he delights to hear Christ and of your place in Christ. You're part of that treasure. When you come to pray to him, Think of what he can do and wants to do because of Christ, what he's capable of doing. All of this, he delights to hear of Christ and of your place in Christ and expect great things. Do we pray like that? Do we pray, God, 
I know what you're capable of. I know the greatness of your power. And when I come before you, I'm not going to, I, I'm not going to be holding back. I'm going to ask you to do what I think you've laid on my heart. And I'm going to believe that you're capable of doing it. And nothing but anything can stop you from that. How often do we pray this way? Thinking that we know what God can do and what he can't do. God can do anything he wants to do. There is nothing impossible for him. And he has said to us, notice again in this, the surpassing greatness of his power towards us. We know his power is great, but what Paul is saying, do you know how great it is to you and what he wants to do? And sometimes it is our lack of faith that holds everything back. Have we understood and do we know that this power is available to us, that it's towards us, that he wants us to appropriate it and use it? Do you remember what Paul said in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12? He said, I was given a thorn in the, in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to buffet me. And I prayed three times to God because I know he was capable of removing it. But he didn't. He let it stay. Whatever it was, it stayed. So that Paul could learn in his weakness the power of God. That's what Paul said. Paul learned the power of God even in his weakness. Paul goes on to remind us how great this power is. Listen to verse 19. He says, And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, by which he brought about, which he brought about in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. By the way, I'll just stop there and say that's interesting. We're in this age, and there's only one to come. Only one. So think about that when you think through your eschatology. It's this age and the one to come, not two, not three, one, but also in the age in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet, Christ, and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body and the fullness of him who fills all in all. That word for fill there means there's nothing else that can be added. Nothing. It's full. It's complete. What he's saying is this power is the same power that's available to you, the power with which I raised Jesus from the dead and seated him in the heavenly places at my right hand, made him head of the church, made everything subordinate to him, 
By the way, Colossians chapter 2 says, on the cross, all of his enemies were defeated. There's coming a day when he will come again and they will all be removed. They will all be, they're already defeated, but they will be done forever and cast into the lake of fire. And we will be with him in the new heavens and new earth for all the rest of eternity. That is our hope. The power that is available to us is unimaginable. Do we get anxious sometimes because we wonder about what tomorrow will bring? Do we get anxious about our life, about our health, about COVID? Do we have anxious moments? Certainly we do. Do we get anxious about this country that we live in? That's why you're not watching the news? Yes, yeah, there are days when we get anxious about ourselves, about our family, about the country. Do we get anxious about the church and its future right now? Satan wants us to, but here's the issue, folks. We have to keep our eyes on the hope of our calling and know that it's not ending here. It's there when it's complete. We need to take appreciation of the riches of his glorious inheritance, the church, and care for it and love it and thank him for being a part of it. And we need to be aware, comprehend the greatness of his dynamite, his power to us who believe in him. It's available. Andrew Murray is right. Don't in your prayer life, exclude in your mind or your heart what God can do. You don't know what he has planned, but you know that nothing, nothing in this world can overcome what he wants to do. He can raise the dead. He can heal the sick. He can cast out demons. He can throw Satan into the lake of fire forever and all unbelievers with him. There is nothing that is impossible for God. Don't worry about whether you're going to make it. He will be with you. Paul says repeatedly that he gives me everything I need for life in godliness. There's no temptation that can overtake us. None when we appropriate his power through prayer. Salvation covers so many things. We need to comprehend the greatness and the fullness of our salvation. Paul said again, back to 2 Corinthians 12, my, he said, I learned that God said, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is perfected in weakness, so I would rather boast in my weaknesses that Christ's power may dwell in me. What a God. What a salvation to think of the hope of our calling. It's secure, it's permanent, it's eternal, and it's glorious. And we need to focus there. And also know that this, the riches of the glory, glorious inheritance 
in the saints are his and we are to cherish one another and him for that making us part of his inheritance and making us glorious when we were not and finally appropriating the greatness of his power which I don't think day to day we really get we really grasp we really understand we really appreciate let me read to you I want you to turn with me if you would to Philippians chapter 3 Philippians chapter 3 and I want to read to you in closing verses 8 to 14 verses 8 to 14 Paul says more than that I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law but that which is through faith in Christ the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection <clears throat> from the dead not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect but I press on in order that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus brethren I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet but one thing I do forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus brothers and sisters that's the way we ought to live pressing on towards the goal of the upward call in Christ appropriating resurrection power to get through the days here in this life do you believe that do you believe that's available to you we need to comprehend the greatness of his salvation father I thank you this morning for these words from the Apostle Paul and I pray that you would write them on my heart and upon each one here help us to comprehend there's more than we were told at the beginning much more much more available to us in this great plan may we comprehend it and embrace it fully and appropriate it and thank you for it in Jesus name we pray amen